it's Ashes, and welcome back to another episode of Simply Put. Last week here we talked about dog whistles and debated the idea of whether hate symbols should be more well-known by those who wouldn't be affected by them, or if that put at-risk communities in even more danger. On Simply More this week, I talked briefly about the panel I sat on last Thursday at my alma mater and how much I've grown as an activist and an advocate since college. We had about a week's notice and there was some give and take from all sides in order to make sure that it happened. And the night before the panel, the organizers asked the four of us how we felt about it being recorded. And we all agreed and we had several conditions attached to them about how it was shared and having reservations about it being used as a marketing tool or taken apart and used without context. Um, And for context for that, all four of us have earned our seat on the panel by being incredibly critical of the way that Cedar Crest has handled their diversity and their inclusion, creating equitable standards and following through with their promises. So none of us were comfortable with the idea of them taking or being able to take parts of a video where we were speaking, very obviously speaking to the faculty at our alma mater and using that as a marketing tool or to take the quotes from that out of context and create their own spin on things. And it ended up that uh, for many reasons, the organizers chose not to record and that's perfectly reasonable, but it also means that there's no record of the things that were said. And uh, damn, those are some really powerful things. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of the other panelists. I'm I'm proud of the people who are brave enough to ask questions. I'm proud of the organizers who at least sort of knew what they were getting into when they asked the four of us to do this. Uh, And I'm proud of the faculty who stayed longer than they needed to and were willing to listen to what we had to say uh, long past when they were supposed to be there for their training. So today, I'm going to share the speech I gave, and next week I'll cover some of the things the other women said, um, a few of the staff's reactions, and a bit of the decisions that were made behind the scenes. But before I begin, I want to take a second and remind everyone that my experiences are my own. And even though many experiences of black and brown people in the United States may have some bits of overlap, it doesn't make anyone else's experience invalid or mean that I speak for all light-skinned, mixed-race women just because that's the identity box that I fill. Because college was the first place that I was able to experience any level of diversity, and I was lucky enough to spend time with many admirable Black women there, and they each taught me a much-needed life lesson. From conversations with then-President Ambar, I learned the importance of investing in the next generation. I chatted with her almost every day as we walked from one building to the next, and one day I was working on a speech for my advisor's class, and and she asked me to tell her about it. And the day I was supposed to present, she walked with me the entire way to my classroom just so she could listen to me practice, even though it made her late for a meeting. And when winter hit, she always made sure that I actually owned a coat, because she would see me across the quad and she'd be like, Lynette, hey, hey, Lynette, girl, like, what are you doing? Are you okay? Are you cold? What's going on? It's like, no, no, like, I'm fine. I'm just from Michigan. Like, I'm not, I'm not cold yet. <laughs> like, this is nothing. Um, and we'd laugh and we'd joke and we'd keep walking. 
then it was time for us to part ways and say goodbye. And she'd be like, no, but, but for real, like, are you good? Is there, like, do you have a coat? Is there a need that maybe I can help you with or something that, um, that I can do for you? Like, no, President Ambar, I legitimately have a cold, a coat. I'm not cold. Um, from Dr. Cynthia Fulford, I learned when to set boundaries and that it's okay to say that enough is enough. And I learned that being unapologetically black in a professional space was possible. I learned that having natural hair was possible. I learned that taking up space was okay. But from Dr. Owens, I learned a sentence that I have heard myself repeat more than I would like to admit. She started my first meeting with her by saying, Lynette, I will give you all of the tools and the directions that you need to handle this problem on your own because I believe you and I understand what happened, but I can't directly be involved because if I do, I won't be in a position to help the next person who comes through that door with a problem just like yours. And when I say that I resented her for years for that answer because I didn't understand, uh... Until one day I said it myself. And it was when I was working in the juvenile detention unit at work. And this young girl came up to me. She was 14. And she asked for a one-on-one with me. And before we even got to the office in the back to sit down and talk, she was sobbing. And I'm trying to get her to tell me what's wrong. And she's telling me, you know, Miss Lynette, I told my favorite staff that I'm gay. Like, she found out that I'm gay, and I, like, confirmed it. I told her that I'm gay, and she rejected me. Like, she just, she wanted me to go talk to the pastor, and she was talking about conversion therapy, and she was saying that it would be okay if I'd never done anything with another female, but I had, and so every night that she works now, like, she just sings me lullabies uh, about how I'm going to hell, or makes comments about how I'm going to hell, or leaves me notes with Bible verses on it that are all awful and I don't know what to do like what do I do and my heart broke this girl fell asleep three nights a week to lullabies about her going to hell being sung to her by the staff responsible for guiding her and keeping her safe while that staff encouraged the other residents to sing it too. And the staff had been incredibly problematic in the past and held a lot of those beliefs in her personal life. So there was no reason for me not to believe this resident. And later on, I would hear from other residents that it was even worse than what she told me. But it didn't seem to matter because consequences never stuck on that particular staff member. So I did what I'd learned so many years beforehand, and I sat her down and I told her, I am so sorry, and I believe you, and I want to be with you every step of the way, but I have to cheer for me for the sidelines, because if I'm with you, then I won't be here when somebody else has a problem like this, because I was the only bit of diversity in that unit at the time. So I sat her down and I gave her the list and and I explained to her how she needed to say these or to to see these people in this order and she needed to talk to them in this order and she needed to be as honest as possible and she needed 
to try to be as calm as possible. And I told her I would dial the phone so she could tell her PO and she, I would dial the phone so that she could tell her attorney, but I couldn't stand and walk beside her. I could only cheer from her for the sidelines. And, and it sucks because if that would have been a more diverse environment, I could have risked that. And I would have risked that. I would have risked that to make sure that she was safe because if that's, if that's something that is being, being allowed someplace that I work, that's not someplace that I want to work and that's okay. But I was the one drop of diversity in that house and I was used to being the only brown person there. Growing up, I was the only brown person my peers had ever seen. And up until me, many of my teachers never had to think about how their content could be harmful to non-white students. In second grade, it was, all right, kids, we're filling out forms for standardized tests. Make sure you all fill out in the bubble that says white completely so the machines can read it. Press really hard. You got to, nope, you got to make sure that it's all the way filled in. Oh, wait, except you. You're, you're black. You'll fill out the black one. That's the fifth one. But I'm white too. Can I do both? No, you're black. You can only fill out one. And when you get papers like this, you always put black. Just one, just black, nothing else. Okay. And I learned that day that no matter what else I was, I was black first. And there was nothing that I could do or say to change anybody's perception of my identity. I was seven. In seventh grade, I sat in class listening to my peers answer questions about representation in media. And they were saying that no one was interested in listening to black people. Nobody wanted to see how black people live. If black people wanted representation in media, then they should just have their own network and watch that and put all of their shows on that because they just wanted to watch normal families. And their parents didn't let them watch shows about black people. Or if there was a black actor on TV, they made them change the channel. So this way they could just watch whatever they wanted. And it took a bit. I was quiet. I had nothing to say. But eventually people started to remember that I was there. And it got quieter and quieter. And people were nudging each other and and pointing. And then the teacher who's watching all of this happen... Um, waited until it was completely silent to ask me what I thought. And that was the part that I hated because even at 12 years old, I was aware that I would become the face of all black people in their eyes while somehow also being the exception because they knew me. I was black, but I wasn't. I was black. I was different, but I wasn't that black because they knew me and they knew that I didn't act like the stereotypical black people that they saw on TV. And that would be a line that I would tread my entire life. Sophomore year of high school, I cried and I begged my history teacher to stop picking me to represent a slave in his reenactments because it was really traumatic to sit down and listen to my friends debate the pros and cons of owning me while I watched them begin to dehumanize me, me, actual me. And that affected me and damaged me in real life 
long past the time that the class period ended, long past the time that I graduated high school. And then finally, to college, where I was excited to see other people who looked like me, and I, I hoped that I would fit in. I was really excited to learn and have new conversations, but it was already too late. The internalized racism and self-hatred that growing up in that kind of environment had created had already taken its toll. I didn't feel like I fit in, and my classmates and staff reminded me regularly that every new and exciting opportunity I was given was only offered to me because I was palatably black, that I was taking away space from real black people and should make sure that I said no to any opportunity that came across the table. And because of that, I constantly battle imposter syndrome, even today, even knowing that I belong amongst the other panelists, that I'm just as qualified, I still feel less than. I'm still checking my own internal monologue to combat the tendency to second-guess myself despite it being my job to talk about these things. And knowing that I've grown to be the least palatable form of black woman, I come across as confident, prepared, and unapologetic because I cannot afford to show the world weakness or to allow a give-and-take situation to happen. Instead, I'm the unlikable black woman, the reclaiming-my-time black woman. I'm the black woman who said what she said and will not back down from it, and the black woman who isn't afraid to say that I am speaking. Yet I'm sitting here being honest and vulnerable because I don't want to have to add a disclaimer to my qualifications because the college doesn't seem to be able to have a good PR team. I want to be proud of my alma mater, and if that means I sit here and I bear my soul in hopes that one of you cares enough to take a second to reflect on whether your classroom really is the even playing field that you think it is, then that's what I'm going to do. So if you have questions, ask them. Even if the answers make you uncomfortable, because I promise you you're not the only one who feels that way. So let's use that discomfort as a motivator to learn, because when we know better, we do better, and there's no reason that the alumna and the faculty cannot do this together. And I mean that just as much in the here and now as I did when I wrote it the first time, when I practiced it with my friends, and when I gave it in front of my professors. I'm here. I am offering. Let's do this. Find me on patreon.com backslash simplyashes for more exclusive content, or iamsimplyashes.com for free content. If you have questions and you think that I have answers, send me an email at iamsimplyashes at gmail.com and we will work something out. Until next time, stay safe.